Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In popular culture, when someone says don't judge or who are you to judge, what they mean is how dare you criticize me. This common adulteration undermines the commandment's original purpose, namely to invalidate and supplant human opinion, whether critical or complementary, with a written text. But to me, St. Paul writes, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, Paul warns against passing judgment on anyone even oneself, in order to emphasize the primacy of the written gospel. So that in us, Paul continues, you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. If not even Paul will judge himself before the time, how dare any man give his opinion of Jesus Christ? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 179 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are going to read Mark 17 through 22 this morning, and right off the bat, our good friend, the NASB, which tries very hard to be faithful to the literal interpretation of the text, has demonstrated that no matter how hard you work, no matter how scholarly you are, you're going to project, you're going to conflate. They titled this section, The Rich Young Ruler, and I think we'll have something to say about that as we progress. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a man. That's all we know. He's a man. It makes it very universal. When we read this pericope elsewhere, he's a ruler. When it's a ruler, the problem is that the listener could say, Well, I'm not a ruler. This doesn't apply to me. When this is a man, then any man can see that this potentially applies to him. His first concern is, how do I inherit eternal life? He is, first and foremost, thinking about himself and what he gets. And this is a dangerous way to begin the conversation. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And this is not hyperbole. Jesus is not playing a trick with words. He's not making a point. He is giving you a commandment, an instruction. Do not call anyone good, but God, don't even call Jesus good. When you call someone good or bad, you are exercising your judgment. And Paul demonstrates in his letter to the Corinthians that he won't even judge himself. 
That's why it is vanity when someone comes beating their breast, telling what a sinner they are. It's false humility. Because in order to talk about yourself as a sinner, you have to sit on the judgment seat, which means you're making out of yourself an issue, and you are not the issue. It is God who says you are righteous. It is God who says you are unrighteous. So stop beating your breast and start turning the pages and hearing Scripture. When my children complain about a teacher not being a good teacher, I say, well, how do you know he's not a good teacher? Well, I didn't learn anything. And I say, that doesn't sound like the teacher's fault. It sounds like you weren't working. So is the teacher being good or bad dependent on how hard you're working? Maybe. But I know when I was a professor... And I could go in the class and not having prepared anything, be 10 times smarter than the smartest student, then at the end of the class, get an evaluation from the student about whether I was a good teacher or not. It rings a little hollow. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And of course, we've talked many times about how this last commandment is always interjected in the Gospels and in Paul's letters because honoring those who have authority over you is essential for understanding and submitting to the teaching of the Pauline Gospel. We don't need to belabor that point here today, but he's giving him a list. Everyone comes to the priest and they say, what should I do, Father? You know what to do. Stop fighting with your siblings. Do whatever your wife asks you to do, unless she goes against the teaching of Jesus Christ. Treat the stranger's child as your own. Work at the soup kitchen. If you're fighting with someone at work, put yourself under them, don't fight them, etc., etc. Everybody knows what the gospel means. 1 Corinthians is a treatise on telling you what you already know but refuse to do, because like Israel of old, you are stubborn and hard-hearted and you have wax in your ears. My mom, her whole life, was a probation officer. And she used to say, if only the people that she worked with put as much effort into working within the system as working around the system, they would be fine. They wouldn't get arrested as often. This man wants things to be more complicated than they actually are. Why go to the good teacher to hear the things you've heard 15 times? He's going, oh, maybe he wasn't as good a teacher as I thought. He's just telling me what I already know. Because the man wants something extra complicated, extra hard, so he can set himself apart from everyone else and hit a higher bar than everyone else rather than just doing the basic things that are expected of everyone. Doing them and understanding that in doing them you still are not righteous and you are still condemned by Deuteronomy. You can check off every box. No one is good but God who sits upon his throne in the heavens. He's the only one who's good and he decides who's righteous and who's unrighteous, and it is on his whim, not on the merits of your deeds. And this is what is impossible for people to accept. No one is good. I'm going to say it again. No one is good but God. And here comes the self-righteousness, Richard. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. How many times does someone come face to face with sin, in their own life, in their own family. And they're shocked. They can't believe it happened to them because they followed all the rules. They were pure. Well, I have news for you. You may have kept a pure veneer in your language, in your dress, in the company you keep, in the rules that you follow and take stock in. But Scripture has revealed 
in exposing the sin that you now can't grapple with because you believed in your own purity, that in fact, while your speech was pure, your behavior was vulgar. I had a student who once complained in my class that the class was too easy. Dr. Benton, it's not challenging enough. And I said, really? And I walked with him outside of my office, took him to the main area, and I pointed. I said, there's a library. How often do you actually go to the library? Have you read any of those books? And you're going to tell me it's not challenging enough? Go read some books. I mean, the complaint is assuming a very narrow view, just like you're saying. The actions are very vulgar, but they're only looking at one little thing rather than looking at the big picture and how it fits in the big picture. There's so much out there within even these six commandments that Jesus lists out. What all does that entail? I've honored my mother and father. Yes, I kiss them every time I see them, right? But all the things that they've taught me, I've forgotten. All the respect that they deserve when I'm not around them, they don't get. He doesn't actually submit to them, but he says, he gives them lip service that he honors them. I was the husband of one wife or the wife of one husband, but I treated my spouse terribly my whole life. But I followed the rule. I was faithful. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you still lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Here it is once again. Mark isn't using this language, but this is what he is saying. You have to be perfect as your father is perfect. Now, we know that you can't be as good as your father. And until you figure that out, you're going to be stuck in therapy. God the father is the head of the household. And no one measures up to God the father in Mark. So if Jesus cannot be called good, what is it you're trying to prove? Stop trying to prove yourself to your father. Why? Because in life you have nothing to prove to your father. He's seen it all. This idea that you have to prove something to your father is a denial of death. It's not enough to get these commandments. I need more to show. One time in seminary with Father Paul Tarazi, I got a B on a paper. And I came to him and I asked him, why did I get a B on this paper? And he said, because I was feeling generous. <laughs> And then he started going through my paper and showing all the problems that I still had that he didn't count me off for. Good teacher, what do I need to get an A? And he said, you only got a B because of my grace. And this is the point. It's only when we can admit our weakness in fulfilling even the basic commandments do we have a chance of doing anything good ourselves. And so the point here is, okay, if you really want to know what you need to do to inherit eternal life, this will guarantee eternal life. Do exactly what I say, give up everything, and do not count on yourself for anything for the rest of your life. Death on the cross. God is good, but God is the source of life. You are temporary. And so is your money that Jesus is saying to give away, to give to the poor. The only way to be a martyr is to die. It's when you are martyred that God crowns you as good. But how can you be good? What do you achieve before your death? It's a very powerful teaching, and people don't see the power of the teaching. What can you achieve before you die? Nothing. 
But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And it's interesting in Mark that in his mind, he is sitting on the judgment seat, deciding who is good and who is not good, both with respect to Jesus, whom how dare he judge Jesus, and with respect to himself because he thought he fulfilled the commandments. But now we see the root of the problem. He owns property, much property. But what I read in scripture, and I say at the end of every burial, is that the earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness thereof. He's the only king. And it reminds me of a story that Father Paul shared with us about a Muslim shop owner. There was a shop in the Middle East, and a homeless man came in to ask for food, and the workers in the store said, no, please go away. The owner of the store caught wind, and he came out and he told his employees, God is the owner, the possessor. God is the king. The words in Arabic are much more beautiful because it connects ownership and kingship. But the point is, the owner confessed to everyone in the restaurant, this food doesn't belong to me or to you. The store doesn't belong to me or to you. The land on which it's built doesn't belong to me or to you. God is the possessor of everything. Give him the food since it doesn't belong to you because you would have thrown it out at the end of the day anyways. This man with his property believes that he needs the property in order to be who he is. He needs to fulfill commandments to prove that he's good and that he's worthy of eternal life. Instead, what he has to do is he has to submit first to father and mother, then to God. Then he has to be willing to give it all up because only then can he depend entirely on God instead of depending on himself and his own ego. Right now, this poor, rich man depends completely on his own ego. And as a result, he cannot inherit eternal life because his ego is going to die with him. There's nothing eternal about it. He's a functional antichrist. He sits on God's throne and he claims God's possession for himself and he judges the Messiah as being good. Who does he think he is? Now, I'll say this, Richard. I will give credence to the American critique of Islam when I see at the local McDonald's the owner of the franchise telling his employees, don't throw that food away, it belongs to God. When I see that in our industrial consumer society, then I will suffer the critique of Islam on the lips of Americans. I'd like to see one American store owner do what this guy did, which totally fulfills scripture. God is the owner. You have no right to throw it away. Thanks very much. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.